Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight in my <clears throat> satsang, I felt like approaching a subject which has not been uh, approached for quite a bit in Agama, and I never made a satsang about it. And it's a subject which needs to be clarified. It also came into my mind to do it because... I've just seen that the school in the program for 2016, it has uh, asked me to do a workshop on this theme of invoking angels in the spiritual practice of yoga. And um, also, given the fact that some of you will go into a retreat that is having strong connections to spirituality in its religious forms, faith, love, devotion, surrender. And uh, it seemed to me appropriate to talk about this subject, which is very often highly misunderstood, and it produces lots of confusion also. We come to the interesting point where people doing yoga, either Tibetan or Indian, understand eventually this issue of the devatas, of the ishta devatas, of the deities, and they can do deity meditations according to various traditions, and yet if they would be thinking about angels, they would get some creeps, some goosebumps about it, and they would say, oh, that, that sounds very weird. And um, they would not know how to relate it to the spiritual life. Is that something practical? Is it something which you can do? And for example, could you improve your practice of Trataka? Or could you increase, could you rise your level of consciousness by doing anything like this? Is, the, is it conversion and conversant with yoga in any way? On the other hand, many people, when they think about this idea of angels, it of course challenges the issue of faith. We have many people who come to yoga and because of the secular and very often because of the demonic education which is imparted in the last hundred years in the Western world, people are plagued with rationalism, humanism, atheism, agnosticism and all sorts of other forms of skepticism of different types. And when they come to yoga, it is anyway uh, difficult for some people to say, okay, you know, the yogis are talking about some sort of universal level of energy and there is a sort of unified field of energy like Albert Einstein called it. And I'm willing to understand that maybe there is an all-pervading energy 
and together with it there exists an all-pervading consciousness. So it is funny that when we teach yoga, we have, it's hard to evaluate how many, but almost close to 50% of the people who come to yoga, they are turned off against religion, they are turned off especially against Western religions, they are turned off against any concept of God or something. Uh, they are rather skeptical. And uh, with yoga, it's a well-known thing that many people in an experimental way, in a direct way, like in a common sense way, many people have opened up again. There are many, many people who had lost their faith, lost their understanding, lost their compass, and three years after three years of yoga, they are full on and they understand now. And they have a much, much deeper understanding because they don't understand religion, even their own maternal religion. They don't understand it from the standpoint of bigotry, superstition, superficial religion, dogmas, all sorts of ridiculous beliefs, but they understand it from a rather scientific and rational and experimental way. And this story with angels, it's funny. You know, sometimes you talk about yoga, you talk about chakras, you talk about energy, you talk about levels of consciousness, talk about philosophy, you talk about non-manifestation and manifestation, you talk about spirit and matter... <clears throat> And people can get to understand the forces of nature, the great cosmic powers and things like that. And when you'd get back to a concept like God or you'd get back to a concept like angels, then people are like taking a cold shower because of this conditioning. On the other hand, while on one hand it is like this and people with the concept of angels they are being confronted with a, with, a, with a belief, with their faith or lack of faith. On the other hand, for some people it's a very refreshing concept because some people come from an environment where there is a monotheistic belief, a fundamental belief, even if it's not very practical because as Nietzsche said it some 150, 200 years ago, God is dead. In the meaning that, yeah, people claim that they have a religion, but especially since the Protestant revolution and the neo-Protestant waves in the West, in Europe and in America, religion has become something which allows to people to do pretty much whatever they want. There is a hypocrisy of a few moral and ethical rules, but then beyond that, um, we can see where the world is going and where it has been going in the last two, three hundred years. And this has pushed an irreverent and half-crazy philosopher like Nietzsche to simply say, God is dead. You know, it's like there was a time when people lived in a religion with a God which was looking over your shoulder all the time. And whatever you did, there was an interaction. Your guardian angel was whispering to you. If you did something, your soul would be lost and you felt like you are going to hell. Or like it, it was very alive, this dialogue between the human being and a higher consciousness. People in the old 
days when there was not monotheism in the Greek civilization or Roman. People were searching the augurs, the, they were seeing the portents and the, the omens, and they would sacrifice animals or whatever to the gods, and they would also feel the, have the feeling that they were constantly in a ping and pong, in a dialogue with the deities, with gods, with superhuman entities, and stuff like that. But slowly, slowly, this has gone down, together with the so-called Renaissance and the emergence of rationalism. Um, we witness um, a trend which uh, Goethe summarized very beautifully by saying it is not the spirits of nature and the gods that are dead, it is your hearts that are dead, which simply uh, sums it up and shows how the more we come to the modern times, the people are losing this magic and mystery and this communication with the invisible. And if there is a communication, very often it is of an inferior type of what Bhagavad Gita and other sacred Indian texts uh, describe as dark, tamasic, not spiritually oriented. We'll come back to that when we'll talk a few concrete things. And that's why for many people who live in this Nietzsche-described religion, where God is dead, yeah, there is a religion, but it doesn't make any difference, because then in the daily life you have to obey the rules of people. You know, there are man-made rules which are more important than whatever religion says. Like, you know, the Christian religion may disavow or disadvise divorce, but people are practicing it anyway, because divorce is a practical institution of modern life, and that is more important that I feel good rather than being trapped in a lifelong marriage, commitment, relationship, especially when it turns ugly, painful, and all that. And thus, what I'm trying to say here is that the people more and more in the last 200 years and more, they have discarded a lot of religious things, and religious became pro forma, Again, I'm saying some theatrical set of rules which are broken as soon as the supervisors turn their backs, actually. And um, in this way, this story with angels, while some people are spooked by it, some people feel that it brings them back home. I remember once somebody who was very split between being in love with the, with the Christian religion and with Christ and at the same time loving the practicality of yoga, the down-to-earth spirit of yoga, the fact that yoga is not a religion, but it's something experimental, and you can obtain so many practical, measurable, beautiful results. And then this person, when they understood the story about angels as seen from the eyes of a yogi, they rejoiced very much because they said, I was looking for such a thing, you know. I have been in yoga and I'm coming to the point where I'm worshipping some weird deity with four arms, you know, looking a little bit like a spider instead of a human being or something. Like things looking really exotic but weird. 
And, you know, I had these things in the, in the garden of my house. You know, these things, my ancestors lived with these things. And they are so very human <clears throat> and close to your heart and direct. And, uh, you know, it's like I didn't know how to deal with these things. So sometimes it's a very, very, for some people, it's a very refreshing perspective. That's why in this lecture tonight, in this satsang, I decided to give you a few hints about this. As I said, in Agama, we, because I had pupils who expressed this interest, both here and many, many years ago when I was teaching in the West, and um, I decided to apply the yogic knowledge, the hermetic knowledge, and to give them a full spectrum, a full understanding of um, this issue of the angels. Because uh, it's like some people say, but this thing with the angels, does it have any practical applicability? Is it real? Is it a fairy tale? Is it total nonsense? Uh, what is it? Can we extract something from it? And the answer is yes a lot can be extracted from it. And I'm going to guide you through some of the ups and downs of this today as a lecture. And if one time you'll manage to attend the workshop, for those of you who are interested, you're going to see that this rabbit hole goes very, very deep. And uh, you can make a hybrid an amazing yoga practice, because yoga is a method ultimately, and it is liable to be used for many, many purposes. And yes, yoga can be used for the purpose of communicating with angels and thus connecting with higher levels of consciousness in a practical way, which influences directly your spiritual evolution which is directly related to your practice. So, um, though there are several other motivations for creating such a lecture, such a workshop, more about it as we go through the process. From the very beginning, and I'm going to try to keep it short, from the very beginning, uh, you realize that there are the, the shamanic traditions the animic traditions, the religious traditions of mankind, they speak all the time of, about spirits, entities, subtle creatures, invisible beings made of energy and consciousness, angels, deities, demons, and all sorts of things. Just for your remembrance, let's just make a short list of some of the non-physical, non-visible presences, entities that are mentioned in... I'm not going to be able to mention them all, but at least the most outstanding, a list of them. First of all, in most of the traditions, in some of them in a more positive way, in some of them in a more negative way, we are dealing with the presence of the spirits of the dead, the deceased ones, family members, friends, sometimes foes, 
lovers, people with whom you are related in a karmic way, in a resonance way, they seem to be present around. It's not uncommon that clairvoyants or some others, they say, oh, your grandmother is accompanying you 20 hours per day, you know, so she's always like behind your left shoulder, and that's because you loved her very much, and she loves you very much, and she feels she has a karmic connection with you, and there is a karmic connection, and she is a sort of a protective spirit. There's like a ghost, not in the spooky way, not in the ugly way, not in the frightening way, but there is a spiritual presence which even can be beneficial. This story with the spirits of the dead, some people would go as far as going as spirit of, spirits of animals as well. The Tibetan lamas, when they speak about their art of dying, they say that there are six realms, six basic lokas, where spirits can go after death if you do not reach enlightenment. And these six lokas stretch from the world of the gods, from the world of the devas, the devachan, as it was called in India, which is a very, very high astral mental plane of extremely high frequency, a sort of astral paradises almost, and all the way down to the hells, which are terrible places, where sometimes you can go accidentally if you have a nightmare. If any one of you remembers the most frightening nightmare you ever had in your life, that's a typical example of what's happening when your soul goes into an inferno, into an infernal area where the resonances are terrible. So with the deceased ones, here we have so many different attitudes. Bhagavad Gita considers that connecting with the spirits of the dead is inferior. It is tamasic. It is not conducive to spirituality. And it is actually pulling the human being down. And indeed all these things with worshipping the dead or communicating with the dead and so on, they are the lot of inferior religious products on the face of this earth. While, for example, for some religions, connecting with the ancestors giving support from the dead people of your tribe or of your lineage, is considered to be beneficial, like you are extracting some protection, some inspiration, some power from that. Metaphysical thinkers, they think not. And here we are falling into the famous division by the Hindus, and I'll not be able to insist much on this. This is what you can hear if you were to join a workshop on the art of dying, because that's where we hear about the Devayana and Pitriyana, the solar path or the lunar path, and that was the thing, that without a metaphysical religion, without enlightenment, without something which practically and directly conduces to some form of enlightenment. The human spirits are related to their ancestors. There is a sort of a crowd mentality, a herd mentality, like chickens go all together and sheep go all to all together. And human spirits tend to congregate, tend to stay together. And none of them is becoming a Buddha. None of them is becoming a Deva, a deity. 
<clears throat> there exists an inferiority in this, and then there appears the idea that a human being is liable to reach enlightenment and can do something else. Human beings can break the circle, can come out of the circle of this gregarious spirit, of this herd mentality, and they can rise, they can stand up vertically, they can become enlightened. And then you need to get out of this circle. Like maybe for some of you, especially if your frequency is strong on Muladhara and Zvadistana, it may be a comforting thought that when you die, you will go to your family. That your family is waiting for you in the afterlife. But for the Bodhisattvas of Tibet, it would have been a very offensive thought. Like when you die, you don't want to go to your mom and dad. Because they are in samsara, and they are ignorant, and they are on Zvadistana, and they are prisoners of whatever miseries are in this world, and you want to go much, much higher than that. So you are breaking away from this need of security and the cozy, warm little place where you cuddle with the other puppies in your family and you just feel protected. But it's uh, still, it's something not very superior from a spiritual standpoint. That's why um, there is a difference there. And that's why the attitude about the spirits of the dead, the ancestors and this are very different. We don't have the time to deal here with this. Here I just want to mention that shamanism, animism, clairvoyants, seers, yogis, saints from different religions and other, they mention that in the invisible environment around us, there are floating presences. You can call them spirits. I wouldn't call them ghosts because the name ghosts has something spooky related with horror movies and so on. And it produces a rather negative effect. These spirits are not always negative. And actually invisible spiritual influences can sometimes be very positive and enhance the human being as well. So I spoke about spirits of the dead of all kinds. Another category of spirits we are mentioned are the so-called spirits of nature. The nature spirits which are in connection with nature itself. Exactly as if you go in the jungle, the jungle is populated by thousands of species of creatures, animals, starting from insects and worms and finishing with vegetal life and animals. Exactly in the same way the invisible world, like when you go and dream out in your astral body, it is populated with thousands of types of spirits. And exactly as in the jungle a scorpion or a cobra can be dangerous or even lethal. Exactly in the same way, these spirits are some of them nice, some of them neutral, some of them dangerous, and some of them might be even lethal, although the meaning of the word lethal when you address things which are non-physical is somewhat different. These nature spirits are in the hermetic tradition of the West and in the shamanic, many shamanic traditions, like the Celtic, Druidic tradition, and many, many other magic and shamanic traditions. 
they are related with Mother Earth. These are the spirits of the Earth, exactly as the animals, exactly as the buffaloes and the larks, you know, the birds and the fishes and the beasts, they belong to the kingdom of nature, to the planet Earth and to Mother Earth. And they were divided in the old days according to the elements, according to the dominant chakra, such as earth element or Muladhara chakra, where you have the, the gnomes, the tree spirits, some of these dwarves from the Lord of the Rings and so on. In India, some of the Dakini presences, <coughs> even some of the elven kingdoms in uh, occultism and so on, all related to earth. Entities related to water, such as the nymphs, the mermaids, the undines, the spirits, the sprites, I'm sorry, and the apsaras in India, all spirits belonging to the water element, many of them being, for example, very seductive, like the mermaids. You might remember the story of Odysseus, of Ulysses, who on his long way back home, is at some point tempted by the mermaids who are singing hypnotic songs and all the men are getting hypnotized and all that. <clears throat> it's all the kingdom of water. In the kingdom of fire, the salamanders, <clears throat> normally the salamander is just a yellow and brown reptile, is a lizard. But in the West, they notice that those salamanders they jump into fire. If you make a bonfire, and if there is a salamander near, they get so attracted by the fire that they jump into the fire, and they die because of that. So the occultists of the West, they came up with the idea that the salamanders are the incarnation of some nature spirit. These spirits are sometimes called elemental spirits, and that has a double entendre to it, because elemental means spirits of the elements, but it also means very simple, like subhuman like a dog can sniff a trail better than you, can run faster than you, so a dog can be used to serve a lot of purposes, but that doesn't make the dog a superior spirit to a human. It's lower than human. In the same way, there are many spirits that can do extraordinary things, and yet they are subhuman in terms of the evolution of their consciousness, like the presence of the I am, who am I the very awareness. And thus, these elemental spirits, spirits of the elements and spirits which are very basic, uh, the ancient occultists said, salamanders seem to be the reincarnation of some spirits of fire, because as soon as they see an actual fire, they jump into it. It's like they want to go back home. The, the fire attracts them extraordinarily, even when they die, they don't care about their own safety and they jump into the fire. The Rakshakas in India, Rakshas and others, are examples all over the planet Earth, the, some, some gargoyles of the earth, of the fire and others, spirits of different elements. And for the air, just to say the names, the sylphs, the fairies, the pixies, the Yakshakas in India, and the list could continue. So there is also a list of spirits of nature, this is pretty long, and these spirits of nature are exactly like the animals. There are animals around your household, which may try to 
even exploit you. For example, if you get fleas or lice, they try to suck your blood. For them, you are a source of livelihood. Exactly in the same way, there are also entities among the spirits of nature which consider you a milk, a cow, to be milked. This, this is why it is interesting the analogy in the cultish movie The Matrix when Morpheus shows to Neo the illusory nature of reality and he says, actually you thought you lived in Kansas City but there is no Kansas City anymore. There is just a computer simulation and your mind thought you, but actually you, you are put in a tub, you are sunk into a tub with fluids and basically the purpose was that you grew and you biologically existed but it was a vegetative existence. You are more or less a vegetable connected to a computer and your purpose was to become this. And he shows him a Duracell battery or some, the, the brand is not visible. It's just, but you can see obviously it's a battery. That's exactly what some of these spirits of nature do with human beings. For example, the ones which determine you to masturbate and lose your ojas. When you ejaculate or you discharge a big orgasm being alone, there is somebody at the other end of the wire, as spooky as that sounds. There are entities which... And they take that energy which you freely give, and you've got 30 seconds of pleasure, or 5 minutes of pleasure, or whatever you've got out of it, and they got a part of your ojas out of it. So exactly as we milk a cow and then the cow is free to go for 24 hours and graze to produce more milk, exactly in the same way human beings are exploited energetically by some entities which are not necessarily bad. They are bad from the standpoint of your evolution because if you lose your ojas constantly, you will have no more bodhicitta. You will have no more aspiration. You will have no more motivation. And you will be flat and discharged. And your head will be down. And you will never look up at heaven with hope. Because you will be all the time hunchbacked by your heaviness. By your vice. By your low energy. And all that. And thus, um, they can be bad in a metaphysical way. But they are not bad like evil. And they can even cohabitate with you in pleasant ways. No, it's like they can enhance your sexual pleasure when you masturbate. So that you decide to masturbate some more, more abundantly. Because masturbation is so good. The number of computer nerds who sit in front of their computers and spray their keyboards every day is astonishing. You know, it's safe sex. Why would you risk to go out there with a partner who can give you a chlamydia or can uh, be a bitch or an asshole when you could do it on a computer screen and it's safe and it gives you even more pleasure and you don't have to put up with the bitching of some partner who can be an egocentric jerk or something like that. And thus, uh, this is where the entities come into the game. You don't realize, but you are just Sheared like a sheep is being sheared. You produce wool on a daily basis for somebody. Yeah? 
So the spirits of the nature, as spooky as it is, it exists. They, they exist, I'm sorry. And there is a huge variety of those. Some of them useful, some of them not so. We are talking about demigods and deities. And here that's where we start seeing the light. They are entities which finished or passed, surpassed the human levels of consciousness, usually going to Vishuddha Chakra or higher, and some of these become deities. The English name is gods, but I do not like this name and I advise people not to use it for the very simple reason that it mixes with the English name God, which is the God, the one God, the absolute, the, the Lord of the universe. And when you speak about gods, even the great Greek and Roman gods, such as Zeus and Hermes and the likes of them, there would have been no sane Greek which would have said that Zeus is the lord of the universe and the creator of the universe. Zeus found the universe already created and was pre-playing in a limited part of this universe, more precisely in our solar system. And therefore, Zeus is not the author of the universe. And there is something beyond Zeus and Hermes and... Aphrodite and all those. But this knowledge was not necessary to them and it was not spelled out in those times. That's why please make a difference between the word deity and demigods which are superhuman spirits. Some of them endowed with great power. Some of them have demiurgical powers because some of them reach the causal worlds and they can change realities fundamentally, they have creative powers, limited, but still creative powers within some limits. Remember the Greek legends where Hephaestus or whoever, the blacksmith of the gods, gets angry at one of the titans, they are in a battle, and he picks up a piece of burning coal from his blacksmith furnace, and he hurls it at the demon. And, and the demon, the Asura, the titan, ducks it and the piece of burning coal falls into the ocean and it becomes the island of Sicily in the south of Italy because the island of Sicily is a volcano. But the ancient Greek gods, they said it was created accidentally out of a sleight of hand by the blacksmith of the gods like an error, like, oops. You know, it's like, oh, there is Sicily. So if somebody can create the island of Sicily, then it means they do have some creative power, and yet, that is not the cosmic consciousness. It's something which is close to it, but it's not yet the ultimate level, the supreme level of consciousness. Demigods and deities, they represent an ideal for the human being, and Patanjali, the great yogi, says it very clearly in his Yoga Sutras, just to see that Patanjali himself knew about these things and con uh, was uh, condoning them or otherwise confirming them implicitly. Patanjali says, if you do a lot of yoga, 
your level of consciousness may increase to such an extent that you may become the equal of some of these demigods and deities. And then they will greet you. They will come in a trance, in a meditation, in some in a dream, and they will tell you, Whoa, you've become one of us. You've done so much yoga. Now you are, you can be one of us. You can live in Olympus. You can live in Valhalla, you know. You can live in the world of the gods. You know, welcome. And Patanjali says, if you fall for this, you are a fool and you have missed the point because you are not doing yoga to become a deity. You are doing yoga to become a Buddha and to reach nirvana, which is way beyond the level of the deities. The deities are still something temporary and relative in samsara, but it's true that they are placed on a higher floor than the human beings are, and then the human life is so relatively and comparatively, to become one of the devas is definitely a progress on the scale of your evolution. But it's not the full progress, It's exactly like you say, I went to the university and once I got a BA, I declared myself satisfied. But somebody says, why didn't you get the master's? You could have gotten a master's. If you got the BA, why don't you continue for another two years and get the full master degree of it? That's what I'm talking about. Deities are like the BA and master is like the enlightenment. So, Demigods and deities, there is a long story about their, end, about their connection with human beings. Spirit guides are sometimes mentioned by some people, and unfortunately in the New Age modern culture, this has become a syntagm a little bit too often used, and spirit guides has become a very confusing concept. And many people who honestly think that they communicate with some spirit guides, they actually... Uh, are cheated by some stupid entities and demons being given second-class information and all sorts of confusing things. There are demons. The demons are like the dangerous animals of the jungle. Like there are spirits out there that have a certain amount of malice, certain amount of wickedness to them, a big ego, and simply they will act out of it. And uh, even lower than that, the devils, the satanic entities, the ones belonging to hell, which are worse than demons. In the, no, in the common English parlance, I have seen often people making a confusion, which is forgivable at the levels of street culture, between the word demon and devil or satanic. Uh, in metaphysics, there is a clear definition And uh, demonic means something which is sometimes good and sometimes bad, like Don Corleone of the Godfather, a monstrous killer and drug trafficker and whatever, who can be very nice and friendly and kind sometimes to the people that he likes. Or like a Colombian drug lord who can kill people for his cocaine, but also be very generous and friendly to his wife, kids, friends, whatever. So that's the demonic spirit. It's a mixed spirit, while the diabolic spirit is negative 24-7. 
it is all the time destructive and oriented towards darkness constantly. It has a dharma which is negative. So there is a difference. Those are not in the same place and they don't have the same resonance. They are two different classes of entities. And the list could continue now that you understand, that you understood. There are so many classes of invisible entities. And of course, we last but not least, we have to mention the angels, which have a few special characteristics. First of all, there exists the very bad. I've seen it so much in the last 40 years to mix up the angels because other religions except uh, Judaism, Christianity and Islam, other religions don't have angels and people love this concept of angels and if they could have the presence of an angel in their life or experience some angelic phenomenon, they would be like, wow, you know, this is like you caught God by the foot of his, by the ankle of his foot or of his leg or whatever. And therefore, people would feel confirm, confirmation. People would feel themselves empowered and confirmed. And other religions not having angels, they started coming and saying, yeah, but we do have lots of these invisible things. So that must be it. That's why, uh, you know, people come, you find books where they say, angels slash or dash, uh, devas of light. Like devas means deities. Light deities, like people would say, oh, what in uh, Palestine they called angels, in India they called devas. Error. Profound error. This is mixing apples with pears. This is mixing totally different things. They are from different categories. It's not the same category. Angels are not devas. Angels are not from Shambhala. Angels are not spiritual guides. Angels are not demigods. Angels are not spirit guides. Angels are not spirits of nature or fairies or whatever. No? And, you know, there is the superstition. If children die baptized, they go and become angels. That's not what the Tibetans, the Hindus and everybody else would say. Because it's a matter of karma. If a child dies, it's probably because that child was a Roman soldier 2,000 years ago and killed a child. And now he is a child and he is being killed either by a person or by uh, avalanche or by a mudslide or by a hurricane or something. So let's not mix up the fact that the child may die because it has a bad karma and that it's becoming an angel. One does not become an angel. One can become a saint. But people are very inexact about these things. There is a fuzziness, a fogginess, and people are refusing the traditional sources, although the traditional sources are pretty clear. And that's why I thought that such a lecture and the continuation of it in a workshop for those who are interested to really get to the bottom of this and see how it's done practically. Um, people have to understand very clearly what angels are. And uh, angels, we have to say it from the very beginning, angels are almost eternal spiritual beings. 
either you consider them messengers, which is the original meaning of the word angel. The word angel also when translated from Hebrew and Aramaic, when translated to, to Greek as angeloi, uh, it, they all they tend to mean messengers. They were understood specially first as messengers, but also guides, helpers, and therefore the angels are send or emissaries or parts of the ultimate power. Everything in this universe, when you go to the essential levels, um, has a pyramid. Like I, I wrote here that the angels make sense only in the context of a monotheistic spirituality. If there is one God, what comes from that one God, the direct hierarchy, retinue of that one God... Those are the angels of different classes. There may very well be other spiritual beings serving under some higher powers, like servants of Zeus, or of Aphrodite, or of Indra, or of Thor. Spirits that serve those deities, or that serve Tara, Kali, Sundari. There are myriads of such spirits. But they are not angels proper. They could be called the angels of Kali or the angels of Tara. They are not really angels properly. Because the angel, the proper name of angel uh, is reserved to the derivatives, to the derivates from the one. All the others are called hierarchies. Even Shambhala is said to have a hierarchy of spirits which are not yet in Shambhala but they aspire to join Shambhala and they are the hierarchy under Shambhala. And in the same way there are spirits, non-human spirits this time, there are spirits which are subordinated to Tara, to Kali, to other and other deities and they belong to the hierarchy. It's like each one of them is a minister with a ministry and clerks and a hierarchy under them. But all these pyramids are all of them swallowed and included in a much more gigantic pyramid, existential pyramid, which is the universal pyramid, on top of which there is just one. Above all the deities and all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and above all the existences, all the demigods and all the spirits and ancestors, above everything, above all the cosmic powers and everything, there is the One. That One, which the Vedantins call by a neutral name, Brahman, which would mean the Absolute. It's a very neutral and convenient name which does not scratch or offense anybody's susceptibilities, above that absolute, above that, the Kashmirians call it Anuttara, the unsurpassed, the supreme, the ultimate. That's the top of the pyramid. There is nothing beyond the one. The one is the universe reduced to the extreme simplicity of the oneness. So the hierarchy which derives from that is a hierarchy which embraces the whole universe, and that hierarchy is what the angels 
in their various classes are. As such, there are a few elements that you need to understand. First of all, the angels are non-denominational. Like they don't belong to a religion. You cannot say that they are angels only for Christians. And then the Hindus, because they believe in devas or whatever, they don't have angels. The angels belong to the one universal consciousness. Period. And as such, they are omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient as the cosmic consciousness that generates them. So they are beyond the limits of religion. Although some religions do not acknowledge them as such, that's a totally different story, and we can talk about that at some other opportunity. And uh, there exists a thorny issue. For example, there are many thorny issues which come from this denominational thing. Like, for example, in Christianity, and not only in Judaism and Islam, it's present, where they speak implicitly or directly about the guardian angels. That sometimes it is said in some religions, like Christians in some denominations, they say, there is a guardian angel connected to me. What about if you would have been born Hindu, or Zoroastrian, or Buddhist? Do you have a guardian angel? What if you have been a Christian, and you converted to Buddhism? Did your guardian angel die, run away, disappear? Was it never there? Was it all a fairy tale and there never existed a guardian angel? And the list of questions could continue. Who has a guardian angel? Where does it manifest? Remember, people find it awkward and to, to go into this devotional, mystical place. And sometimes they find replacements. For example, many people when they die, they have the presence, the people who had near-death experience, they reported the entity of light. And most people identified it as the presence of their guardian angel. But then there are people who don't know about the guardian angel, and they didn't have a word for it in their language, and they didn't know what to make out of that presence. And then there are people who, because it doesn't exist in their religion... They try to adapt it. For example, Lobsang Rampa, who was a bogus Tibetan Lama and who purported to preach some elements of Tibetan yoga, which actually he did, but under the mask of uh, some delusive mask, which he endorsed. So Lobsang Rampa tried to, to explain the mystery of the guardian angel death, near death, and all that. And because it did not exist in what he knew, in the mysticism which he knew, then he said, oh, the guardian angel is just a manifestation of your own supreme self. It's just your own higher self manifested. Yes, it's a way of saying it, but then it means there is no guardian angel, it's just an illusion, no? But then some Buddhist sects, they say there is no self either. So how can the guardian angel be the manifestation of your higher self when there is no higher self? According, But of course there is a Buddha nature. Okay. So in this way we're just running like a dog around trying to catch our own tail, chasing with words and concepts. 
and missing some very important points. But um, remember that there is this story, which I'm not able to explain tonight. I'm just opening this door. No, like each and every one of you can ask yourself, do I have a guardian angel? Did that guardian angel automatically come to me and wrote me in his list of customers when I was born? Or nine days after I was born? Or is it because I got baptized? And if I wouldn't have been baptized, I would have not been ascribed to any guardian angel. And basically, I'm still having a blank slate. And I could actually decide today, when I'm 30 years old, to get in contact with my guardian angel or to apply for a guardian angel. Is it automatically? And even if I discard it, like, what was like the guardian angel of Joseph Stalin? Did he have a guardian angel after all? Or Adolf Hitler or Mao Zedong or something like that. So there are many, many questions which come there. And uh, there are answers in metaphysics. I'm not uh, just saying that there are questions. And that's why uh, also understand that the angels are not human and have never been. They existed before the creation. The angels are not the product of evolution. You can become a demigod, a deva, a deity, or can even reach to enlightenment, surpassing all these samsaric conditions. But you cannot become an angel. Angels are something else. They are like a scaffold. It's exactly like you have the, the warp of a piece of cloth. And then you put that warp on a loom and you start weaving it. And you are weaving a silken embroidery or a very nice textile or piece of cloth on which you can see lions or tigers or nature, trees. as a beautiful thing. The invisible part, the warp, that's what the angels are. While human beings, evolution, nature, the universe is what is painted, is the textile. It's the embroidery itself. There is a skeleton which existed there before the embroidery. That thing which pre preceded creation, those are the angels. The angels are created to serve and to make creation function. They are the administration of the universe, the management of the universe, and thus... They have functions. And that's why the angels are almost eternal. As long as there is sun and moon, angels will be there. You cannot say that an angel becomes old and becomes something else. Or gets bored and changes his mind. So, not only that they are not human and have never been, they are androgynous. Androgynous is a concept issued by the Greeks. The original name Androgynos is a Greek name. And it's a name Andros means male, masculine, and Ginos means female, feminine. And Androgyne is something which is male, female, exactly like Shiva Ardhanarishvara in Indian mythology. What is Androgynous? Androgynous is 
a human being who transcended the qualities of being a man or being a woman and is more than a man and a woman, has included both, learned both and transcends them. Androgynous is not the same thing with sex change surgery or hermaphroditism or sexual uh, uh, mutilation or aberrations of any kind. Androgynous uh, is a very high concept in alchemy because it means you have transcended the yin and the yang. You are above the yin and the yang. And um, the angels are androgynous. You find funny things in Hollywood movies and other low-class things where you see that angels are supposed to be masculine or feminine. They are not. They have no gender. They are without. They are androgynous. They don't need a gender. And that's why an angel, in a certain way, it can be denominated like an it. It's not a he or a she. However... There are psychological reasons in religions why they say that angels may appear as feminine or masculine in some situations. You'll see why. There is so much. This is so deep. I'm just scratching the surface. I uh, am teaching about this usually a five, six day workshop and I feel I didn't get to the bottom of it even then because the angelology, the science of angels is a gigantic lore. And they are egoless tools or expressions of God. So angels don't live for themselves. It's exactly like your finger doesn't live for itself. You see it, it's separate. You can talk about your finger. Your finger seems to have an existence of its own. And conceptually you can talk about the life of your finger, your index right finger but it's still you. It's part of you. The angels are God. They are just fingers of God. That's why they are, they are acting beyond space and time. There are no limitations to their capacity. They share omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscience. They share the divine qualities. There's no way like in uh, Hollywood movies where some uh, angel gets his ass kicked by some demon. That can never happen. Because the angel has an archangel above it. And the archangel has a dominion, and a power, and a throne, and a cherubim, and a seraphim. There is a hierarchy. And if the angel simply says, there is a force which I don't understand, somebody else steps in immediately from above. There is no limit. The tiniest angel is God, speaks for God. That's why the angels are a very, very special class of entities which exists. And um, this is the fallacy of the story of the fallen angels. Because Christianity is incapable to explain the concept of evil, even when they speak about fallen angels, it's a Svadistanistic, stupid myth and legend because it has no logics to it. In the Christian mysticism, because, and many others, Jewish, Islamic and others, because they are dualistic, there is always this thing. 
that you can ask the very provocative question, who created the devil or evil in general? And there are only two possible answers to this. First answer is, of course, God created the devil. Oh yeah, but God created him nice. He was an angel of light called Lucifer, uh, the great hope of all the angels. And one day he got very selfish and he said, the hell with God, I can do the job as well. You know, I have all the power in this universe. And this is, he became a fallen angel and blah, blah. But if God created the devil, and if God is omniscient, like knows everything, then isn't God the author of evil? Because you cannot say that God could not predict that Lucifer was going to turn. If God could not predict, it means God is ignorant. There is a, there is a dark cone, there is a blind spot for God, and he couldn't see it coming. And if he saw it coming, then why the heck did he do it anyway? Which means God is okay with the existence of pain and darkness and devil and all that. And he accepted it. Because he created the devil himself. But that's unacceptable in Christianity. Where you want the good Lord to be all white and nice. And you don't want to associate it with anything evil. And then if you say the devil was actually not created by God. It makes things even worse. Because then you are saying it means that the devil is as powerful as he created himself. Or there is somebody behind him who created him. And that somebody is as powerful as God. Like God is not the only creative power in this universe. There is something else which created the devil. And therefore there is competition. And it makes the God relative. And therefore none of the answers is okay. And the Christian mysticism answer is, the devil, the evil, is neither created nor uncreated. Seek no more. Like, don't keep asking questions because we are red-handed. There is no logical good answer to this question. And that's a question where you have to apply blind faith. Dogma. The dogma is that the devil is neither created nor uncreated. Shut up. Stop digging there. Concern yourself with something else. And that is why I'm saying there is no fallen angels. The fallen angels is just a myth to justify in a Svadistanistic superficial way that actually God had the best intentions and uh, Lucifer manifested some wrong choice. Angels have no choice. They do what God makes them to do. If there is anything demonic or dark in this universe, it doesn't come from the angels or fallen angels. It's a totally different story. There is a fallacy. This story is a Svadistanistic, theological, Christian, and perhaps Judaic and Islamic story for the masses to appease the simple-minded masses. But it has absolutely no justification metaphysically. And thus, the angels have no free will in the human understanding of the free will. That any angel can say, I got bored of being an angel. Your right finger cannot get bored of being your right finger. It's part of you and always with you. So, this being said, 
there are various functions of the angels in this universal hierarchy, such as they help, they protect, they heal, they transmit messages, they guide, they correct, they punish, they give signs, and they have many, many other functions which have nothing to do with the human beings, because the creation of the universe contains an economy of the universe. For example, there are archangels and angels related with the planets, with the planetary influence. And from those archangels and angels, some nations, they derived their deities. They simply said, because I hope you realize, Zeus, the Greek Zeus, is the Roman Jupiter and corresponds to the astrological planet Jupiter and is called in India Indra and it's called in Scandinavia Thor. And Jupiter and Zeus and Thor and Indra, they all of them have a lightning bolt because they correspond to the great cosmic power Chinamasta from Tantra, the mistress, the, the goddess of the lightning and of electricity and all that. All these correspondences are crystal clear when you have your metaphysical studies clear. And those who study Agama, they usually have an extremely good discriminative knowledge about these things. And thus, uh, remember that, of course, there are planetary influences and of course the angels are related with the spheres of the universe, with the levels of consciousness, with planets, with forces, with elements, with a lot of other things. That's why many of the functions of the angels are way above the heads of the human beings. They refer to the balance of elements and things in the universe and all that. And... Of course, people ask themselves, why are they present in the life of humanity? No, because there is an interference between the divine and humanity. Humanity without a divine intervention, like the laws of Manu, the Zendavesta, all the spiritual texts that enlightened humanity, the Vedas, and everything that made people stop being oxen with their neck bend of chores and hard farming and raise their head and think about something much bigger than that. So this is coming from a grace, is coming from above that the human being has obtained this self-awareness, has been given a soul, a living spirit that can have this self-awareness and therefore also the human beings interact with the Angels. Do animals interact with angels? Yes. The angels, for example, take care of the totems. In shamanism, the animals have individual existence, but they are not governed individually. They are governed by the totemic soul, the soul of that species. Like the North American shamans, they speak about the great bear, a sort of an archetypal bear who is the bear of all the bears, the father of all the bears, the great bear and the great eagle and the great buffalo. Those are called totems. And the totem, which is even carved in wood sometime, is like an idol. And it's a way for the shaman to communicate with the spirit of that species. And for example, the 
North American shamans, when the season of hunting would come, they would dance the whole night and make offerings to the totem of the buffalo and simply say, tomorrow my braves are going to go hunt some of your sons and daughters, buffaloes, but we do that because we need food for the winter. So may it be ecologically okay. We're not going to kill them chaotically and irreverently. We're just going to take what we need for the tribe and it's part of the ecology of nature. And they prayed to the great buffalo to be allowed to do that, to have an understanding. These are totems. So the animals have collective souls. There is a great soul and those souls are governed by angels. They have connection with angels. That's why whenever a species of animals disappears from the face of the earth, the angels react to it. No, you say dead as a dodo. The dodo bird has disappeared from Madagascar. Yes. And the angels were aware because there was an angel that had on his list the dodos. But in Kali Yuga, it was meant that the planet Earth would go into an ecological bad place for a while because the human beings had to taste the fruits of their own actions and it continues and it's going to get worse. And because of this, some species, some of these totems were withdrawn. That's why you see species which almost have no more power to survive. Like they are trying like desperate to breed pandas. And the bloody pandas are not breeding anymore. Because the totem of the pandas is almost dead. If you'd have a Padmasambhava, a Guru Rinpoche, to come and bless the totem of the pandas, the pandas would start remultiplying and spreading again through the nature. But the panda is a dying totem. And there is an angel which knows about that. Either it is okay in the big plan, like that it's, it has, the time has come for the panda totem to die because the totems being collective spirits, they are born and they die. Exactly as some countries were born and they died and nobody heard about them anymore. Read in history how many countries were and are no longer. How many nations were and are no more. And look at the countries. Some countries are young. Some countries are very old. Try to think which countries meant a lot for the history of humanity 2,000 years ago. And what are they today? And countries of which nobody had heard 2,000 years ago, today they run the show. So even the souls of nations, even humans, have a sort of totemic souls, which are called national souls or egregores, souls of the nations, and those have an evolution. But of course the relationship is different, because while the animals are 100% under their totemic thing, Human beings can migrate from a country to another. They can change the language which they speak. They have a limited amount of free will. They can make choices and they can die for their country. They can betray their country. So there are many, many things that there are differences. But remember that 
humanity interferes with angels under various forms. And remember also that the angels cannot help without being requested specifically. It's like the famous story with little Michael who comes to school half an hour late and the teacher is asking, why are you late? You always are late. And Michael says, no, 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 I have an excuse. I helped an old lady cross the street. And the teacher goes like, oh, so nice, Michael, you helped an old lady cross the street. So everybody should take example. But still, why take half an hour? Because it can't take you half an hour to help an old lady cross the street. Well, well, that's the point, says Michael. She didn't want to cross the street. No? So when you help somebody to cross the street when they don't want to cross the street, that's like you are stuffing things down their throat. Even when it's the right thing. Like, theoretically, your freedom says that if you are a smoker, I, and I could get away with it in front of God from that standpoint, I could catch you, kidnap you, deprive you of your freedom, tie you to a post like an animal, and keep you tied up for one year in my basement and feed you, and not give you a single cigarette, and in this way I could make you quit smoking. And it would be for your own good. But the question is that for, animal, for human beings this does not apply. Because the human beings have been given the gift of consciousness, and the gift of consciousness is the gift of freedom, and it's the gift of free will. So you can make your choices. You, God gave you the gift of choice, and you can join a satanistic lodge and hate God. Good. Do it. You are just going to reap the fruits of it sooner or later. But still you have the freedom to do it, and in the moment when you sign your sign with blood, there is not a lightning coming from heaven and killing you on the spot, and a voice said, let all those who dare do this, get this. You know, it's like then nobody would join any satanic club or anything like this, and the world is full of them. Which is because people don't get hit by the lightning instantaneously. And many people think that there is no God, and that you can get away with it, or that God is dead. As Nietzsche said, and God is impotent, and you can laugh in, in his face. And therefore, this is called the gift of freedom and of free will. And it is tenaciously maintained by the cosmic consciousness on purpose. Like the cosmic consciousness is playing hide and seek, and it hides all the time. It ducks. Every time when you lift the veil and you hope to see God... God has been one step faster and has hidden in another place already. And you constantly live with the idea there is no divinity. Until the day when you become like Ramakrishna. Because when Ramakrishna was asked by Vivekananda, God, I don't see any God. It's like, I don't believe in God. It's like, what is, you keep talking about God, but you know, I'm a rationalist. I want to see this God you talk about, can you see it? And Ramakrishna looked at him with disbelief and he said, I can see God better than I can see you right now. And thus, Vivekananda was given a great lesson of his spiritual ignorance. No? Because some people reach to the point where they cross the threshold and they lift the veil. And for them there is no more need to be tested by this game of hide and seek. But 99.99% of the people, they have to undergo what is called the wall of silence or the wall of appearances. 
and it's because of karma. This is what Buddha said when he said the source of all suffering is ignorance. Ignorance. So what's the solution? Ignorance. To know. Knowledge is the solution. Real knowledge. Not phantasmagoric new age knowledge, which is equivalent with ignorance. But actual knowledge. The traditional, powerful, accurate knowledge. And that is why even that knowledge is not there. That's why even when it comes to paranormal phenomena, even when it comes to much smaller things than God, people are living in an ignorance. Please remember that at this time of history, more than 50% of the scientists out there and more than 50% of the medical doctors out there, they would swear with their hand on the Bible or on the Constitution or whatever they swear on, that there is no prana, there is no chi, there is no life force, and it's all the figment of some people's imagination. They 100% believe that things are so. They are self-hypnotized, into that belief and they believe in it as much as they believe in their own lives. And therefore, speaking about God and angels is a bridge too far. What about seeing God? You don't even see that some people can bend a spoon or smaller things than that. Even walking on fire, which is done regularly, and perhaps we'll have a fire walking seminar even next year here in Agama, Even that bends people's minds into disbelief and people try to find superficial explanations for it. And that's that's the wall of silence. The wall of silence is that gaining a superior level of knowledge is like climbing a mountain. It's really difficult to gain a higher level of knowledge. And there is always opposition. You have to earn it. That's why the Buddhists in Thailand... And not only, they have an excellent concept. It's called gaining merit. Remember that to the fact that some of you come to yoga and they do 1, 10, 5, 20 levels and you learn about a lot of things is first of all based on a merit. You are not aware. But 99% of the population of the world will not hear about the things which you have heard about. And they will not listen to a satsang like this. And even if they stumble over it, their mind would shut down and they will disbelieve it, or they will mock it, or they will forget five days later what they have heard, as if it was some dream. Ah, oh, yeah, it's some, I think I've heard about that, but I forgot, what the heck, and so on. This is the story about knowledge. The knowledge has to be earned. It's like you climb a hill. It's like you conquer a mountain. You have to conquer it meter by meter with a sweat. And that sweat is a karmic sweat. It is earning merit. You have to have merit for it. And then the doors are opening. It's exactly like you are making progress in an information system. No, like in, send in, the, in an information agency, and then you have a security clearing which is higher and higher. And you have access to more and more secret data because your clearance has been bumped up, has been changed. 
That's exactly how it goes with karma and with this. And that's why we talk about angels, we talk about deity, and we talk about the divinity, but it's very difficult to access some of these data. And therefore, remember, the angels cannot influence you without your approval or specific request. Because if it would be so, the divine consciousness would simply say, oh, he's having cancer, and uh, I think he should be healed. I have compassion. Boom. But he's not asking. He's not saying, God, please heal me. Please show me a way. I remember the story of a confused Israeli girl who some five years ago, she said, it's incredible. I was to Agama courses for one year. Then I went back to Israel. I got in a very confusing situation. And then I left again to travel a little bit. And I was not feeling good at all. And when I was in the airplane to Bangkok, I prayed to God and I said, God, please show me what to do. Show me what it is. Give me a solution. Give me an answer. And when she descended from the airplane, she bumped straight into me. And she, she, then she realized, she had a moment of epiphany, and she said, this cannot be a coincidence. I prayed, and I got an answer. And I knew, and so on. She came, she joined an astrology workshop, she joined this, she joined that. Then she asked me, you know, what do you see? I told her a few things about her future and so on, which I could infer, you know. And then she disappeared. From time to time she writes an email. Like, this knowledge comes and goes. It's like solar eclipse and lunar eclipse. It has waxing and waning and you have to gain it. You have to gain it. Sometimes I've known people who knew great things and 20 years later they had forgotten them. So, it's a long story, uh, this one. But remember that uh, even the angels... Although they exist, they cannot help you without specific and repeated requests. Because if they help you without you requesting, it's like help you to cross the street when you actually didn't ask to be helped to cross the street. They can't do that. It's against the laws of free will. And thus, to respect your free will, which is a divine gift, the cosmic consciousness has to stand back. And let you free field, like, do your thing. Become divine in consciousness. And thus, the angels are available. But remember, even the angels have these limitations. Like, for example, you pray to the angels, but you pray once for five minutes. And it's all just a demonic, curious thing. You are just a sarcastic cynical person who says, yeah, I wonder if this thing which I learned in the angel workshop is really true. I'm just going to do it. You know? Of course the angel is not going to answer because you don't believe, you are ignorant, and you, are, you would like something flashy immediately, basically because you would like to destroy your lack of faith and your ignorance. And the price is too big. That's why when the angels act, they act in funny ways like this. You pray for something and then there are synchronicities. There are coincidences. And then you say, yeah, but that's not the angel. Like, what would you like? Would you like the angel to appear 
in human form, surrounded by a triple rainbow and a halo of light, and with some thunders and lightnings, and make a hocus-pocus visible to everybody, and then you would be convinced that the angel was there. That would modify your degree of knowledge and of faith instantaneously for the rest of your life. And perhaps the level of other people around you. If angels and devas and other entities would act like this, there wouldn't have been one single soul on the face of this earth who wouldn't believe in spirits and angels and devas. Because it would be, you would have to be the last moron on the face of this earth not to believe in something so evident. But it's never so evident. It's always in a very discreet way. So you always wonder, you know, it's like uh, I won the lottery. And last year I prayed to Lakshmi for six months. I wonder if it's related. How imbecile can you be? Of course it's related. But you see, you are asking for a flashy manifestation of Lakshmi. Because the problem is not that you won the lottery or not. The problem is that you are plagued with disbelief. The problem is that you don't believe and you are ignorant. And you would like something to relieve that forever, instantaneously. And it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Remember that there were people who lived with Jesus. And later they booed him. There were people who tried to kill Buddha. There were people who poisoned Milarepa. And the list could continue. No? Like, there is an ignorance, there is a blindness, which is inherent to Kali Yuga, to the human nature, to this planet, especially in some epochs. And that's why... Um, you cannot eliminate it. Like we talk about a difficult subject and it is possible to eliminate it for you. Like I remember I taught this angel technology some five years ago in a workshop in Canada and some elderly people, they started using it and they had some amazing results. They wrote to me after just three weeks and they said, you know, we use this angel knowledge which you gave this special technology and so on and amazing things have happened already. And it's like it's so amazing for us you know, to just communicate with an angel. Elderly people you know, belonging maybe to a more conservative environment and so on. For them it was amazing. So the angels are here all the time. Unlike deities or other subtle entities... Like the angels share this omnipresence, omniscience quality. They may even help in small daily tasks, which are good in the beginning. Like, really, to ask you an A, I, I encountered this mentality that people would say, I asked my angel, my guardian angel, to help me bake a good cake. It's really, it's endearing. It's very candid that somebody can think like that. And I admire it. It shows a very nice heart. Now, of course, everybody knows that our contact with angels, if it's possible, it's for much bigger reasons than cooking a good, baking a good cake. 
Sure, if you are a housewife and you have 15 kids, baking cakes all day wrong is probably part of your important things in life. And then, but if you are like Padmasambhava or like Milarepa, that you are not going to connect with the guardian angel for that purpose. No? So, therefore, realize that the angels have a very great scope and they would help you with a lot of things as, lo as long as those are moral. As long as go, as we say in yoga, along with yama and niyama, the angels can help. Ramakrishna was endearing and candid exactly in this way because he wouldn't do anything without asking Kali. Even when Totapuri, his great guru Totapuri, came and said, Boy, I will teach you Vedanta, you know, come and like, which is again funny. Because usually in India, the disciples have to beg the gurus for days and weeks and so on. Please accept me as your disciple and teach me this science of immortality. And Totapuri, like, like his other female guru, Bhairavi Brahmani, they both could see that this boy was meant to become a luminary of his century. So Totapuri simply said, you are the man, I will teach you, you need this teaching. And Ramakrishna, while he was personally elated, like, whoa, Totapuri is going to teach me Vedanta. He said, yes, but I have to ask Kali first. Like, he treated Kali like his mother. And he went to Kali, to in front of the statue, and Totapuri, who was above the beliefs in Kali and this, he, he kind of scoffed with disdain. He said, yeah, right, like, what a naive thing. But he went anyway, and he asked Kali, and Kali said, yes, and Ramakrishna said, yes, I can be your disciple. I will be your disciple. Teach me. So exactly like this, if you'd have a contact with an angel, you'd be constantly in contact. The great Greek philosopher Socrates, he said he was in contact with a sort of angel. He called it a daimon. And unfortunately, many people make the confusion between this word and demon because it's very close. And it's like he had a demon and he described this daimon like a guiding spirit which was on his right shoulder or left shoulder, I forgot. And every, this, this spirit was very frugal. The only manifestation of this spirit is that whenever Socrates was trying to do something which would have been immoral, this spirit was saying with a loud voice but only Socrates could hear his voice. It was like a parrot sitting on his shoulder, like an owl owl sitting on his shoulder and only when Socrates once in three months or something when Socrates was about to do something stupid this spirit owl would say no that was all how many people in this world wouldn't like to have a diamond on their left shoulder so when you try to do something that the spirit would tell you no and then you would know what the will of God is what the Dharma is, what not to do, if you'd listen carefully to those no's and do not pay attention to your ego too much. And that's why uh, contact with angels can be very rewarding from this standpoint. And uh, it, as long as they don't contradict evolution and the greater good of every individual, angels will help, even when it's not about direct spiritual things. There is an example given in literature about an Australian woman who lifted, helped by an angel. She prayed 
desperately and she lifted a car which normally she couldn't even move. There was a car on a jack and her son was under the car fixing something under the car and the jack was put in a bad way and it broke and the car fell on, her, on the chest of her son. And then she started praying to God and to all the angels and she lifted the corner of a car. And it was a very heavy car, about two tons, and she could lift a quarter of it, which normally she couldn't lift 500 kilos or anything like this. But she could lift it for 10 seconds until her son came out and saved the life of her son. So that's not something about evolution or knowledge, but it's a, a need of the daily life. This was something which happened in her daily life, and for her it was super important. And there was some angel propping his finger under that car at that time, helping things a little bit. As about the looks of the angels, just uh, very briefly, I will conclude soon. Uh, generally, they are humanly shaped for our own sake, because they could take any form, but you'd get scared or spooked or confused. There is the gender issue that... They have no gender, but they may appear to have a gender. And there were people who were in contact with these angels, and they said, if you'd be more than half an hour in their presence or something, you'd start bleeding out of your nose, or like the energy is so formidable that you'd be like near an electric power station or something. It's like it's almost too much energy for the human being to bear present in those. And um, they are sometimes appear as sparks of light, balls of light, sometimes they appear in auditory way, kinesthetic way, and to enhance receptivity to the angels in yoga, we advise meditation, visualization, singing and chanting, like kirtan and bhajan, trataka, breath work, painting, manual work, karma yoga, musical composition, writing, paying attention to synchronicities like clouds on the sky, animals and their actions. You can also write letters to your angels. Obstacles in contacting angels is being too busy, tired, distracted, lack of faith, feeling guilty or unworthy, uh, too painful, uh, truth, uh, when you, there is a too painful truth that is to be discovered, scary, expecting bells and whistles, trying too hard, impurities of different kinds and uh, you have to learn to recognize angelic presence therefore and there are false signs which uh, are reflected in inflation of the ego if there is inflation of the ego there are no angels there's no angel who will manifest in your life and make your ego become bigger because then the angel has betrayed its basic meaning which is to support you in your evolution so as soon as there is inflation of the ego, it's certainly no contact with any angel. Makes you worried, scared, depressed, changing contents and being chaotic, uh, going into gossip and criticism, confusing, unclear, forced and unnatural, des giving despotic orders, making predictions of disasters and things like that. There are many, many things to say. And uh, I read quickly through this list because um, now I want to bring you a little bit to the yoga of it. I already mentioned a few things of yoga. It's an arguable thing. I cannot convince you tonight about the positive existence of a cosmic consciousness 
If you are already convinced and you believe it in your heart, you know it already. Those of you who still don't know, you have to practice, practice, practice until those veils fall off and then you will see. Your own experience is sovereign here. If you don't have it through your own experience, I and Rumi can talk to you about God as much as you want. It won't mean, it will not make a difference. It won't mean anything. Only your personal experience will give the final validation of this. But, so I said, I'm not trying to convince you tonight of the existence of a cosmic consciousness or of angels. This is a lecture where I am introducing the fact for you that in the spiritual world, for those who study spirituality, there appears also this subject. It's almost impossible to look into spirituality without encountering at least hierarchies. Hierarchies of Tara, of Avalokiteshvara, of Kali, or in the monotheistic religions, hierarchies which come directly from the top of the pyramid, which mean divine hierarchies like the orders of angels and all those. Therefore, in spirituality, this concept exists. It is very profitable. It's a very good concept. It helps you a lot. It empowers you a lot. If you have perseverance, it can help you a lot. There is almost no deity in this world, for example, which will help you as much as your guardian angel. If you would have access to your guardian angel, I can promise that your guardian angel would be more present in your life and more supportive than worshipping of deities and others because the guardian angel is made for that. Kali is not made for that only. Kali is made for a much vaster purpose in this universe and you can make friends with Kali or with the sun, with Surya Deva. But your guardian angel is made for that. And thus, that's the strongest divine presence. And thus, you need to know that there are the seven to nine heavens and their hierarchies of angels, very often expressed according to the tree of life from Kabbalah, that the angels um, therefore have a hierarchy. There are nine classes of angels, to make it short. The, in invoking angels, we are using the, the names, the esoteric names as power of the word, as mantras, so the power of the word is very important. Therefore, which are the real angelic names? And of course, we are talking about sigil. The, the archangels and the angels are sometimes related to zodiac, planets, elements, mathematical and magic squares, seals, pentacles, yantras, perfumes, colors, metals, stones, and... The conditions that favor angel contact are fasting, purity, truthfulness, compassion, love, forgiveness, faith, patience, serenity, devotion, joy, and brahmacharya. And of course there are the opposites of those, 
which are conditions which are diminish the contact with angels. So in this lecture, let's sum up the many things which I have said under a few words of conclusion. Yoga from India and Tibet can be very nicely hybridized with the Western mysticism. Either it is the hermetic tradition with its offspring such as Gnosticism, Kabbalah, alchemy, astrology, Sufism and other esoteric doctrines having appeared in the West or directly with the religions of the West which are the mass product. And uh, yoga can be hybridized because some of this knowledge which has emanated in the Western religions is valuable and it is actually true. It is based on some profound studies done by great esotericist masters, seers, along centuries and along thousands of years. And since these things are there, then automatically they can be used with yoga. If there exists a yoga of Jesus, as Paramhamsa Yogananda would have called it, and that would mean work on Anahata Chakra, do Trataka on an icon of Jesus, do repeat the prayer of the heart, do this, do that. So there you can define a yoga of Jesus. Like, could I do eight hours of Christ-oriented practice every day? Yes. Can yoga inspire me? Terribly. Formidably much. Yes. So there can be a yoga of Jesus. In the same way, there exists a yoga of angels. You can get in contact with the angels. This is why we often say, when you do yoga, you don't need to become Hindu. You don't need to become Buddhist. You don't need to be... If, for example, you feel connected with your roots, Jewish, Christian, Islamic, you can stay in those roots. But you can use yoga as the wonderful instrument that it is. Because with yoga you can amplify. A great saint like Russian saint Seraphim from Sarov, he became enlightened. He did not have methods of yoga too much, but because he was enlightened and so on, of course, his spiritual intuition was formidable. And some of his students, some of the monks in the monastery, apprentices, not students necessary, they asked him, old man or seraphim, what do you do, for example, when you go to the mass? Like the mass is a ritual. And maybe we should stay in the cell and make two hours of prayer like this. Why go to the church and attend the mass, which is a public event? It's a ritual. It's an external thing. Like, I'm sure that if you stay in your room and focus, you can do two hours of more concentrated practice than if you are among people in a church. So they told him, can you get something out of the mass? Can you get more than the normal person gets? Can you tell us what do you do? And Seraphim said... When it starts, in the very minute, first minute when it starts, I stand up straight like this, like a candle, and I put my eyes either on a candle, on the flame of a candle, or on an icon of Jesus. And I stare at it without blinking or winking for two hours and a half while the mass unfolds. Basically, Seraphim said, there is a yoga of Jesus 
you go to the church like everybody else, but instead of looking around to see who has got a new hat or who is poking their nose, you just stand up and do trataka on a candle or on Jesus' image, on a Jesus painting for two hours. And in your heart, you pray non-stop. And then you go to the mass and you are getting ten times more than the other people who were in the same church, attended the same mass, but their mind like a monkey did all sorts of stupid things. So that's why I say, uh, in a certain way, our conferences here about Jesus and the meaning of Jesus for the yogis, how the yogis of India saw Jesus, and uh, some of the teachings which we give about angels, for example, and others, for for many people they are like returning home, like going back home and revaluing a thing which was there. Honestly, if there is a guardian angel, and if you are connected with a guardian angel, and if angels are the fingers of God, like they represent the divinity, and if you can connect with your guardian angel and he is not dead, like the god of Nietzsche, then who do you think will answer faster to you? Some deity that you invoke or your guardian angel? Everybody knows the common sense answer to that one. And thus, this story with the angels, I have learned it from one of my teachers who was hybridizing the West with the East like this. And I found it as a very good thing to keep, to preserve in yoga, especially when teaching yoga to Westerners, because it actually brings a lot of meaning and a lot of positivity and positive energy, and it works tremendously well. And you will not know what I'm talking about until you will actually work, until you will practice. Without practice, what I tell you here, it's like you are reading a book. And reading a book can give you inspiration for three days, and then that's about it. So if you want to go into this, because this is unique, This is the kind of yoga which you cannot learn into a Tibetan monastery or in an Indian ashram. Because those people don't have a foot in both traditions. Some of us, and most of my disciples, they have a foot in the West and a foot in the East. And because of this we are meant by Shambhala. It's part of our Dharma. It is part of what's happening in this end of Kali Yuga. That we are creating some bridges Because there is no East and West and North and South. There's just one spiritual reality. And yoga is a very well-preserved method that helps us to go into that, to dig into that, to obtain results. And thus, uh, the subject of angels is actually very thrilling. And because we are around this anahata Story because I talked about Anahata Chakra several times. Somebody suggested that tonight I should give you a satsang about the role of the heart chakra in spiritual life and in the spiritual evolution. Perhaps I'll do it on my next satsang. Uh, Not next week, but when I'll be back and when I'll do the next satsang. 
then, um, again, because of that, I uh, preferred to go into this story about the angels, to give you a hint about this, and to pull a string, to, pull a, to ring a bell, and to tell you there is an aspect of the Western mysticism which is overlooked, which is forgotten, but which is still available there. And I was lucky enough to learn about this, to practice, to dig into these things. And uh, therefore, this is one of the bridges between the Eastern and the Western traditions where yoga can be applied very well and it can mean a lot for you. It can make a difference for your lives in so many ways. So, enough said. I could say so much more, but again, going in depth with the angels, then I'll speak hours and hours. There is no more time for it than that tonight. I hope this has opened your appetite. Others who will listen to this lecture, I hope they will um, um, also get some valuable input. And um, whenever you can catch the full teaching on angels, the practice, how to do the practices, if you feel you are interested about these things, catch it, try it for a month or two, and then you are already going to be able to see what is happening, how far this goes. Enough for tonight. This was the satsang about angels and invoking angels. With this, we have finished for tonight. If you'll have questions, of course, bring them up in our questions and answers sessions on Tuesdays. But for now, we have finished.